You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this virtual program of Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mina Kim, and I'm the co-host of KQED's live talk show, Forum. And today, I get to be in conversation with Katie Hill. Katie Hill, from January to November, served as U.S. Representative for California's 25th Congressional District, which includes parts of Los Angeles and Ventura counties. She resigned after nude photos of her with a campaign staffer were published, so her new book is aptly titled, she will rise, becoming a warrior in the battle for true equality. If you're and if you'd like to ask, so let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us, Katie Hill. Thank you. So excited to be here. So you flipped a long time Republican district. And I mean, fun fact, it's actually a district I know very well. I grew up in that district for part of my life. And uh, I mean, so to say that you were a long shot candidate when you first made your bid is probably an understatement. Can you talk about what it meant to run and win? Sure. Well, to, you know, to start out, I was, I was never planning on becoming a politician. You know, I was working in the nonprofit sector. I was the executive director of PATH, People Assisting the Homeless. Well, I guess I can't say we anymore, but they are the, uh, the largest homeless services provider in the state of California. And um, I was so passionate about that issue. But, you know, when 2016 happened and Donald Trump won, it became clear that so much that we'd been fighting for was at risk and I needed to do something more. But I thought that by, you know, that I could get involved in the midterm somehow. I didn't even know that my district, uh, because it was so conservative historically, I didn't even know it was on the table for one of the districts that could be flipped. Then I found out that it was one of the most important ones that Hillary Clinton had won it by seven points. You know, so I thought, okay, I'm going to I'm going to try and get involved in a campaign. This is so exciting. And, you know, I looked around and and there was nobody running yet. And the person who was the likeliest to run was the one from before who had lost, even though Hillary Clinton had won. I also really wanted to support a woman. So finally, somebody said, you know, I'm complaining about all this. I'm like, we got to get the right person to run. And so finally, somebody said to me, you know, Katie, why don't you run? And at first I laughed and then I thought about it more. And it was like, well, if Donald Trump can run for president and win, then why can't I or anybody else run for, for Congress and win? And so, you know, I, I was running as somebody who, you know, I was, I was 29 years old when I entered the race. I was, like I said, never, you know, never did debate, never did any of the, the model United Nations or any of the things that people do if they're planning on going into politics. I was, and I knew that I'd, I'd lived a life, right? I'd lived a, a life where I, I was, you know, I, I've done things, I've done human things. And and so I, I tried to be really upfront about that during my candidacy. And I knew that if people were going to elect me, it was going to be because I was a human and because I was, I was representative of their own life experiences and of, um, you know, the things that they'd been through. And so, you know, it was such a long shot campaign and it started out with just me and, and my family and some friends and, you know, it slowly, it slowly grew and it started off as just it, this scrappy kind of this crazy idea. We were up against the person who had been backed by the Democratic Party previously, who had all the labor support, who had all the kind of institutional support. Uh, But we built it as a grassroots effort that was about, you know, rallying people around this idea that we want regular people who are who are in it for the right reasons, not in it for, um, you know, in it for power or for money or for anything else. Yeah, I mean, you were open about who you were so that people, voters knew who they were getting. You were open about your sexuality, that you were openly bisexual. You were a gun owner who also um, was strong on gun control issues. You were somebody who had used drugs. I mean, you were just letting people know, this is what you get when you get me. And people responded to that. And I think yeah. part of what, what from reading your book is very clear is you want other women to realize that they can have that story be themselves, do themselves, right? And be elected and that people would appreciate that. And one of the things that also became really clear in terms of reading your book, She Will Rise, is also that you are concerned that what happened to you will dissuade other women from pursuing that, from, yeah. from you know, saying something needs to happen and other people coming to them and saying, you should be the person to do it. You should be the person to run and being afraid to run. And so- I want to talk about what happened. So then let's talk about what happened and how 
you have not let it uh, hold you or keep you down. So, I mean, shortly before you were elected, you actually tried to split from your husband, right? Mm-hmm. What did he say yep. to you? Oh, well, at that point, he had, uh, you know, and I talk about this a lot in the book, but I, at that point, he told me that if I left, that he would ruin me. An important context for people who haven't read it yet or who, who don't know my whole story is that I had gotten into this relationship with my, we're still not officially divorced, which is a whole right. separate issue, but, um, but, I had gotten into the relationship with him when I was 16 years old after um, a couple of very close together sexual assaults. And, you know, it was, it was a relationship that started off, I think. And, you know, I want, I want in the book, I want my, my experience to kind of be a warning and and hopefully younger women can learn from it. um, Sort of these red flags that can happen in relationships that I wish that I had been aware of earlier on. But, um, you know, it was, it was an abusive relationship and it was one that I knew that I needed to get out of, but, and and as I, it got worse and worse as I, as it became more and more of a possibility that I was going to be elected, that his, he was sort of losing control over me. And so I, you know, I, I said, I, I've got to, I've got to get out of this. And, but when I left, he said that if, if I left, he would ruin me. And this was maybe a month before the election. So I went back, but after I, you know, after I won, after I was sworn in, I was, you know, really coming into my own and I knew, you know, I, I would stay in DC and every time I would have to come back and stay at my own house, I was, you know, I was afraid. I was, I, I would have anxiety for like days going up to it. Um, and I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and I knew I had to, to really get out. And so finally I came with my dad and I left for real. And, uh, and he's, you know, he, he ultimately made good on the threat that he'd made before of doing everything that he could to ruin me. And, you know, I think that as we, as I'm talking to other women about, you know, how they need to be, or, you know, how, how they can um, be humans and live with what, whatever they've done in the past and not let, let it keep them from running for office is it, it is tough because, you know, I, I did step down and I, I think my case is one that's, you know, it's convoluted for a number of reasons because I wasn't, I wasn't completely an innocent, you know, victim in all this, right. I had, I did have this inappropriate relationship with a staffer and you know, I, I, I think that there are important differences in how that came to be. And, but I, I take responsibility for it. And that was one of the biggest reasons that I said, I do need to step down is because I don't want to be the person who is, who's asking us as progressives or as women or as Democrats to make an exception for what we're pushing for altogether, just because it's me. So, you know, today I, um, I talked to a, a woman just today who had a similar experience and, uh, she was, she was in a, she was an executive director of a democratic party, like a local democratic party, um, out of state, out of here. And she had a, um, a nude image that was leaked, but it was, uh, and it was used against her. She had to resign. And she's talked about how, if she, you know, she was on a trajectory to try and run for something. Um, but now it's something that's on the back, in the back of her head and that she's afraid is going to come back out if she, you know, if she does decide to run. And I told her, I was like, you were, you were in no way at fault. Like a crime was actually committed against you. You don't have a liability in this. You have, um, you know, you, you have the opportunity to, to really say this happened to me and it, it shouldn't be something that holds other women back and it shouldn't be something that holds me back. And, um, and getting out ahead of that now, rather than letting anybody use it against you is, is something that I wish I had figured out a better way of doing, um, you know, before, before everything kind of broke down. Because is that what you told yourself when you learned that he had, sent these photos of you, these nude photos of you to a journalistic publication. I mean, I don't think it was super amazing journalistic <laughs> publication, but it was a journalistic publication nonetheless, which I think is a whole nother piece of this that we should talk about. But um, but I, I'm guessing that wasn't the first thing that you felt when you found out this was going to happen, that like, you don't deserve this. This isn't, that, that this is a criminal act that's being done to you. Yeah. No, the first thing, the first thing that I felt was, was fear and was, you know, this sinking feeling of he did exactly what, you know, I was afraid of. And he did, he did this, he, he, he took, I I thought that I had escaped, right. That I had, um, that I had gotten out from under his control, but he was, he used this as a way and in conjunction with my, you know, political enemies and with this right wing media, um, to, 
to show that that's not true, that I had not escaped and that um, he had the ability to not just ruin or attempt to ruin my life, but to affect the lives of so many other people who frankly were even more innocent than I was, um, including all the people who supported me, the people who felt represented by me, the people who were counting on the representation that I had, um, that I was giving them in Congress. And, you know, the effects of that are longstanding. And I really hope that the work that I do from here can help to kind of, um, you know, balance that out and make up for, for what was lost when we lost the seat and, um, you know, we lost the seat back to the Republicans. So, I'm I'm hopeful that we gain it back in November, but it's it's definitely, you know, there there's so many thoughts that are going through your mind when that's happening, and it, it wasn't it wasn't I'm a victim. It was that I'm, oh my God, this thing that I was so afraid of has actually happened. You've talked about how when you encounter people, you wonder, have they seen the nude photos of me? Like if you're meeting someone for the first time or going to sit down at a meeting, do you still think that when you're? Yeah, part now? of part of my kind of recovery, I guess, or my development over the last, I guess, what's it been, nine months since it happened, um, has been sort of coming to terms with and accepting the reality that there is a, you know, there's a high likelihood that they have seen those images or have at least seen parts of those images, right? Maybe they haven't seen the whole thing, but, um, or they, they certainly know about them and they know kind of the, the, you know, the contents of them. And so I just have to kind of say that's, you know, that is part of my history now. And rather than it being the thing, the one thing that defines me, I would, I would like to get to the point where it's part, you know, it's a, it's a small part of, um, you know, my, I guess, legacy or, or the imprint <laughs> that I leave, um, and not the whole thing. So, uh, but yeah, it's definitely something that you kind of, you think about how do you overcome that? And, um, what do you, you know, what's the impression that you need to make on somebody and how can you hold that in your mind at the same time while maintaining your confidence and, and whatever else it is that you're trying to convey in that moment? I mentioned earlier that one of the things that really struck me about your story was that it was a, an entity, a journalistic entity that published the photos. Because if photos get out, it's usually, I don't know if it's an angry person or they're they're put out on social media or they're, that's, I, I mean, I don't know that there's like a usual, but that is often the way. But if you go through a journalism entity, someone has to make a decision that you should publish these, that somehow the story or this person's um, life should be affected uh, to the extent that publishing such photos would. And I think this is one of the parts of your story that, that I, I do think people need to st step back and think about in terms of whether or not um, this would have happened to a man. I mean, mm -hmm. and this is something you're you're very clear about that you think never would. I mean, they just wouldn't have published these if it were if it was a man. Yeah, I don't Why think do that. Think? Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't think that it was. It would have been as sensationalized. It's you know, there's not. There's just. I you know, and I, I honestly like I've thought so much about this, and I can't. I can't quite put my finger on what it is, like why it is. I think, I think it has to come down to clickbait. Right. Um, and, and this sort of the sensationalization, this hypersexualization, especially of younger women, of bi women. And, um, the fact that I was, that I was, uh, you know, I was in a relationship with another woman that was, um, I think part of it. And I just, I really do think that the, the journalistic kind of standards the, the choices that were made were um, really troubling. And they're ones that I think that those publications need to be held accountable for because not just was a choice made to publish them, but those images were circulated and that's a crime. It's a crime that the images were distributed in the first place, but they were circulated among a lot of different people before the ultimate decision to publish was made. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're pursuing, we're pursuing our options in terms of civil liability around that. Um, but I'm, we're trying to be careful about it because it's, it's precedent setting. There isn't something like this that we can look at. Um, you know, I, I think that it's going to be, it's going to be something that I, that I really, I do feel a lot of responsibility for, um, to ensure that other women who, this is going to happen, right? Like th there are women have nude photos that either they were, that they took themselves and sent to people with, you know, with the expectation of confidentiality or that were taken of them. And, um, and the cyber exploitation is, 
a, a horrifically common occurrence. So as you have more and more young women moving into positions of power, if if the media, if your political enemies, if your vindictive exes think that this is something that can be used to take you down, then it's going to be even more of a problem. And so I, I feel like it's a it's a responsibility and a mission of mine to to stop that from happening. Um, and, you know, going after the Daily Mail and Red State are going to be parts part of that. One of the justifications that was used was the fact that you had had this inappropriate relationship, that you had had an affair with a campaign staffer. And I was struck by something that that you had said. You said that that at a time when women are finally publicly calling out the men who have wronged them, we've had to swing completely to the other extreme and hold people accountable for any transgression whatsoever just to finally achieve some balance. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because it made me wonder if you felt like, I don't know, to some extent, like whether or not it was appropriate to resign for that inappropriate relationship or whether or not even if you feel like the situation that Me Too is trying to tackle to some extent makes it go too far or is in some way flawed. Well, I think that the situation that Me Too is trying to tackle is is difficult. It's hard. You know, the the one thing that I go back to is that this is a we're in a we're in a real moment of transition. And, you know, my election is 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 reflective of that. And so is my resignation. Um, And I have, you know, for example, the relationship with the woman in question started before Me Too blew up. It it started in in 2017, very shortly after I had launched my campaign. and. at the time, you know, and this isn't an excuse, but this is a fact. Like at the time, it wasn't, it was this long shot thing that I didn't feel like an employer, right? I was in charge of this large organization before. I would never have even considered having a relationship with a, with a colleague, let alone a subordinate. Um, but the, there's, you know, there was something about the campaign that let, you know, either my, my judge, I guess my judgment was, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but um, jeopardized, but also, uh, but also that you, you feel, you feel, you don't feel like it's in an an employer kind of position that um, when you don't even think that there's a possibility of you winning. Right. Um, But so I, I think that given that, given that I didn't, you know, I wasn't even cognizant of these, these power dynamics, but yet you still have to be held responsible for it as, as we're having these further discussions um, as a society. And as we're trying to figure out what, what do we want? What do we think is right? and wrong for um, how women are treated in the workplace, how women are treated in general, how women are treated um, in their relationships and, and, and how we ensure safety and security. And, um, and so I think that, you know, as we look at, if we, if we just take, for example, 2017, Harvey Weinstein as kind of the marker of when Me Too really became the nationwide conversation that it is, um, is in the movement that it is, then everything that that people did before, there are there are there are kind of um, different levels of of what I think is you know is now acceptable versus unacceptable. There are things that people have done that they just weren't held accountable for, um, but that it was always just straight up wrong. But there are also things that we weren't even we as a society weren't even really wrapping our heads around that they were not right, and um, and so I think that that's something that everyone needs to be grappling with, right? Like. I've, I talked about it in the book that I've had young, you know, young men who have said, well, before me too, when this was normal or, you know, and even if you watch like, uh, movies from the early two thousands, uh, you're like shocked by some of the things that they say about women or the, the way that they just like grope people and, um, stuff that was just brushed off or, or, or kind of, we were expected to laugh at. And so how do we, how do we want people to make amends? How do we want, we want, we know we want people to change their behavior, but what does it look like? And what's, what's our expectation for um, taking account of those actions and, and changing moving forward? And I don't think we've answered that fully. Yeah. These are the so-called gray areas. I think you talk about that we need to grapple with. Um, I mean, at the time that you resigned, I'd love for you to just talk about what you were doing. I mean, it, you had accomplished things. You were definitely somebody who was seen as a rising star. Uh, you were somebody who was being given leadership positions, areas of influence that could really do things. Can you just talk a little bit about your experience um, as a Congress member, just so that people can understand what 
what it is that you're saying is worth the potential risk, you know, the potential exposure for. Yeah. Well, I coming in as part of this wave of, um, of young people and of women in particular who were elected in 2018 as a, as really a, a backlash to Donald Trump. Um, I, it, it truly felt like we were, you know, we, we'd hit a rock bottom, rock bottom of, um, you know, and, and kind of a wake up call by seeing Hillary Clinton, who so many of us just recognized that she was the most qualified you could possibly be, that she would have been, you know, a great president. Um, and, and then beaten by this person that we couldn't have even possibly imagined being our president. And now we've seen four years of it and the consequences of it. But, um, but so, it, but it felt like, okay, we can come out of this. We can come out of this kind of hole that we're in as a country. And, and, um, you know, we can start to address the misogyny that kind of led us here and, and it's going to take a lot of work, but we can ultimately get there. And we, and, you know, I think a lot of us got there, um, probably with a, a little bit more of a, an expectation of how we could change things quicker <laughs> than is really possible. Um, especially, you know, you know, it in the back of your head that we have a Republican Senate and, uh, and Donald Trump is president and the house is only capable of doing so much, but sure, you still and kind of, generally is a slower process. <laughs> yeah. But, but you also, I think many of us who are coming from these purple districts still had a little bit of hope in bipartisanship and it, that, that hope was absolutely dashed very quickly, um, at least as far as I was concerned. Um, but but it felt like this moment of of excitement and of you know of people who had never run for office, of changing politics, of of people who um, you know not just were in response to Donald Trump, but were in, in response to the the feeling of just political discontent and uh, a belief that the system as a whole, regardless of your party. You're, or your beliefs wasn't working and it wasn't working for regular people. So that, that energy moved into what we were doing as a freshman class. And the fact that we were able to pass um, HR one as our first major piece of legislation, uh, which is about getting big money out of politics and about really returning power to the people that I think is really, that's a, that's a change making history making moment that we can continue on that momentum, even into the next Congress. Um, and hopefully if we have a, a, a democratic s- Senate and, you know, a different person in the white house that we can actually get that signed, it'll be transformative in terms of politics moving forward. Um, but you could feel that, right? Like you could feel the possibility of change. You could feel the the moment being at the front of the moment when generational change was happening in terms of who's holding power when, you know, it, it wasn't like the old way. Um, and so, and, and I was as elected as the freshman representative to leadership and I felt I was the, you know, I was one of the two people who was responsible for conveying that uh, urgency, the priorities of the class, the the concerns of the class, both from people in, you know, this the the entire range of districts from ones where Trump won by 16, 17 points to ones where, you know, like like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ayanna Presley, where they defeated um, Democratic incumbents. And so. But, but but moving into that, so me, regular person, never planned on holding office, like daughter of a police officer and a nurse, was suddenly in the the most powerful rooms of Congress, and and you know sitting literally in some cases right next to the speaker, talking about how these laws were going to be passed and how or how our bills were going to be passed and the the order that they were going to be going in and um you know how we were going to to push back against the president's terrible policies on X, Y, and Z. And, um, and, you know, even the, the messaging and the communication of um, Democrats in response to all of this was, it was, it was such an honor and a privilege to be able to be part of that. And I, I feel like even though I wasn't there for a long time, I was able to make contributions in that first critical year where um, we set the agenda and we showed what's possible under democratic um, leadership. Are you? Completely at peace with your decision to resign. You did it nine days after the photo presentation. No, I wouldn't say I'm completely at peace. I think that it's something that I still sometimes grapple with. Um, you know, was it the right decision? Was it? Did would I have made that same decision if I were, you know, more experienced? If I'd been a, in political in the public eye for longer? 
um, if I had, if the divorce wasn't so raw or if, you know, the, my relationship wasn't such a factor or if, um, you know, if, if the public, the, the, you know, the relationship had come out, but not the photos or, or vice versa, like what would my response have been? And, um, and you know, the moment I think that I felt the most, like I'd maybe made the wrong call was when, uh, was when, you know, we lost the seat in the, in that special election, because I think there was something maybe just naive on my part where I didn't believe that that was possible. I thought we won by so much. We won by nine points. Um, that I felt like the district had changed. I felt like the district was clearly sending a message that, you know, we we didn't want a Republican representing us anymore. And so um, I just didn't even think that it was a possibility that we would have, um, you know, that risk of it flipping back under Republican control. And so, I'm, you know, I, there are a number of things that I think contributed to that. And I, I'm really hopeful that it changes again in November. But, you know, that night when we found out those results, I was just like, I totally screwed this up. I should have stayed. And, and, you know, you certainly get that, that hate mail from even people who have been your supporters of like, how dare you, you, you've ruined kind of everything that we worked for. And, um, I've had to grapple a lot with that responsibility. And, um, and, and sometimes I see what's happening. You know, I think about what's, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we do change control of the Senate and, um, and that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris make it, um, make it into the white house. But I, and I think about what's possible in the leadership that's needed um, from Congress, from our, our representatives in Congress next time and how, how critical it is that we actually get these bills passed and signed that we were pushing for in the last Congress. And so I, I have a, a sense of like, well, you know, what could I be doing? Could, it, could my, you know, my, my skill set or my power or influence be more effective there than it is from the outside? And, and the, the reconciliation I've had to make is that I have to make it uh, worthwhile. I have to make it mean something from the outside, and I have to use my voice and my um, relationships and and the things that you know I've learned throughout this process to be able to influence it from the outside. And I, you know, I've learned a lot about Washington and how you know important that is. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful about it. But there are certainly times where, and I, and I know that when the swearing in happens of the next, uh, you know, the next Congress, the 117th Congress, that it's going to be, you know, I hope to be there because once you're, once you're a member, um, you have lifetime access to the floor and I hope to be there and I hope to congratulate the people that are there and, um, and, you know, maintain my relationships with them. But yeah, it's, it's going to hurt to not be one of them, you know? Yeah. I mean, it still blows my mind that this was nine months ago. I mean, or, you know, it just, it, it really is, really hasn't been that long. Um, but we have been getting questions from audience members. And again, you can enter your questions on Facebook and on YouTube. And, and you know, on a policy question, Bruce asks, how do you think we can resolve our housing challenges? So people want you to get <laughs> right in it with your ideas, Katie. <laughs> Tell us how to solve um, some of California's most, you know, intractable problem. San Francisco, LA. Yeah. You know, you know that that's such a huge one. Um, well, the first thing is we have to, we have to encourage development. We know that, but when you, when we're talking about development, it needs to be, it needs to be strategic. What, one of the things that happens the most is that you'll, you know, you'll see in cities like, I'll just use San Francisco as an example, because it's so, um, you know, clear that when, <laughs> if you're just in, in, in uh, if you're just encouraging building, but you're not saying that part of that building needs to be for people who are part or all of that building needs to be for people who are, you know, um, low or middle income, not, you know, the, the wealthiest, then you're going to have prices continue to skyrocket. We have to deal with the commuting issues around it too. Like there, there should be, and I actually think COVID is an amazing opportunity for us to really rethink work and how um, you know we may not need need to be quite as concentrated in these city centers and in the 21st century. We're, uh, we're you know look at what we're doing now. This is I think more and more people are realizing that their jobs are not ones that have to be done in person as much. And and I, I'm hopeful in, in in terms of the long term that we're going to see more people move to places like you know North Carolina and the Midwest. Go back to places that they came from. Um, you know, if your families came from maybe because you had to come to LA or New York or San Francisco for opportunities. Uh, but maybe now you can continue to have those careers and do so from, 
um, you know, these these communities that kind of had a, have been abandoned. And I think that's how we'll turn those states blue too. But <laughs> I was going to um, say, turn the states purple <laughs> or blue. But that disbursement, if we're able to disperse people, then that that just makes a huge ease of um, on the housing burden. So this is kind of an opportunity that I don't think any policymaker has really figured out yet because it's so new and we don't know what the long-term um, impacts are going to be. But we need investment. We need people who are going to prioritize it. And uh, And one of the things that everyone needs to kind of remember is that this is the power of local elections too. You're the, the most impactful policies that happen as far as housing go, um, goes is at the, the city, state and county levels. And it's not, it's not necessarily at the federal, we want people at the federal level who are going to address it and prioritize it and fund it. But, um, it's the, the local, you know, leadership that is going to, um, make the biggest impact. And, um, it's, it's a long-term problem. We're going to see it I think that we're going to see homelessness continue to increase and, and um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a consequence the, the consequences of it are going to be pretty dire and are not recognized uh, fully yet. If you're not in one of these major, you know, cities. Well, Nancy writes, do you have any advice for young folks hoping to enter or be more involved in politics. And I mean, that's basically what her time is all about, right? Which I think is where you're also channeling a lot of that energy of, you know, what I can do now since I'm still grappling with my decision to resign. Yeah. Well, the first is, um, you know, we're, we're talking about young people, right? I, I, maybe young women separately, but as, as far as young people go, I think that it's, uh, as a, as a generation, and I'm talking about millennials, Plus the next generation, the the ones that are already beginning to yeah Gen Z, who's already starting to get um, into power, that we're we don't have a choice anymore. There's not like an option of maybe we'll get involved in politics. Maybe you know oh I guess I guess maybe sometime I should care about it. The the crises that we're facing are right now, and you know here in California we've seen record high temperatures you know, day after day. And there are going to be communities within our own state that become unlivable within the next 10 years if things continue the way that they are. And um, and so our generation is not just going to have to deal with it down the road. We're going to have to deal with it now. And it, and we know um, very at a, much at a basic level that we, that we can't address these things if we don't have policymakers who get it. And so what I'll say is that it, find your way of getting involved. Find, you know, if you think you're, you don't have to run, like not everybody has to run, um, but getting involved in a campaign or getting involved in local policy around whether it's climate change or, or housing or whatever it is that you're passionate about, gender issues, um, LGBT issues, it can be, it can be anything, but find your issue and your passion and say, I'm going to make an impact on my community do, uh, working on this because there's not, you can't just wait around for somebody else to do it. You're just going to have to find a way to do it. There's, there is nobody else. It's, it's our moment to take responsibility for it and, um, and know that we have to. And I think that when you realize that it's a mandate, it makes it a little bit more empowering because, and, and like the same for me, right? If it's not a mandate, if it's something that you're choosing to do, then it's easier to just go away. It's easier to say, forget it. This sucked. Like the whole thing was terrible. And I just want to move on with my life and do something else maybe go back into housing policy. Um, but if you realize that it's, a, that it's, that it's uh, it, it, you know, it's your responsibility, it's your obligation, it's our duty to our country, to our world, uh, then you're going to find a way to kind of grapple through it. Well, here's the question. What can women in abusive relationships do to escape their situation in COVID? And we've heard about this, right? I mean, the situation for survivors or women experiencing domestic violence or any actually women or men experiencing domestic violence, this has become such a difficult time with shelter so in place. And so any thoughts on, on that? Yeah. Well, one thing I'll say is that the uh, we listed out resources, and this is totally free. You can go to the website for shewillrisebook.com. And we put uh, a number of key resources for different situations, including on domestic violence, where you can look at those um, that are, you know, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, uh, that gives links to it that, you know, just to have and just to to kind of be able to, um, you know, use as resources without buying the book if you, you don't don't want to or you want to be able to send it to somebody. Um, but the, you know, what they do with the the um, domestic national domestic violence hotline is they can help you kind of, uh, I'm talking as if, you know, uh, I'm talking to a, a victim is to develop like that escape plan, right? And the 
Um, what are the things that you need to think through to be able to get out, get out of this situation? And, um, and it's, it's incredibly difficult in COVID when people are, you know, their incomes have been totally affected and their partners or, you know, uh, yeah, the, the abuse, their abusers are not necessarily away as much as they used to be. And, um, and yeah. trying to create that sort of plan is, is very difficult. And, um, but I would say that there, there are resources out there. There are people that can help. There are not enough shelters or support systems just that, you know, socially we've put in place. Um, they're under-resourced, underfunded, but they do exist. And, um, and I think that going to one of those, those, you know, those sites or the hotlines that specialize in this can help to sort of, um, you know, uh, create a, an individual plan on how to, how to best um, handle your situation. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. When did you realize that you were in an abusive relationship? I mean, what myths did you have to basically overcome to realize that that what you were in was domestic violence? Well, this is something that happens with so many women is you when you're in when you're in a when you're in a relationship like this, you know, especially with coercive control where it's not necessarily you're getting punched in the face, but you're experiencing other forms of abuse. Um it uh, the gaslighting that happens and the the psychological manipulation uh, really you internalize it to think that everything's your fault and to think that you are the person who has the problems you are the person who has been um, you know a bad partner or a bad spouse or who deserves whatever punishment you're getting and um, and so working through that is it, there's a there's a major denial element so even when you know I know that I did this and when friends when friends or family members said, Hey, this doesn't look right. This doesn't look like a healthy relationship. Um, I would, I would get upset. I would get mad and I would stop talking to them sometimes. And so, um, I had to, it took it, it escalating to a point of, um, me really not being able to deny it. And also even me being in the campaign and recognizing and, and really kind of internalizing my own power that I was able to say, wait, this is, this isn't how it should be. This is, you know, if I saw this in somebody else, I would not say that this is okay. And, um, and I, I've done a lot of therapy. I was, I was working with a therapist during all of, um, during all of this and, uh, you know, to, to really help kind of wrap, you know, wrap your head around it, but it's, it's still hard in terms of, you know, what, what was abusive, what wasn't abusive. And that's why I write about it in the, um, you know, I have a whole chapter does to to talk about these abusive behaviors that are not as black and white or not as obvious as what we typically have thought of as domestic violence, which is the physical abuse. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like you are still unpacking the psychological impact that it had and that it can come up for you like the weirdest times, you know, yeah. when you've been in an abusive relationship? Absolutely. And, you know, your the way that you're your self-confidence is impacted. Um, you know, and I think even about like the decision to resign, right? I wonder how much of that was, was, uh, was affected by my, inter my, my so long that I've internalized that things are my fault and, and that I was, um, you know, I, I didn't deserve to be there in the first place or that, you know, the, that I was, um, I, that I was found out for being the person that I had like, I don't know, tricked people into, into, because this is the stuff that he said, right? This, these are the things that the, the, the repetitive, um, you know, the, the emotional abuse that was behind it was that, that I was, you know, I was really basically a piece of shit. And, um, and I kind of convinced everybody else that it was something else and that I was something else. And, um, and so, you know, when you're, when you're barraged by these photos and by this just overwhelming kind of, um, everything that was around it and, you know, kind of the imposter syndrome that we, that we all feel when we're in a position of power. Um, I think that that absolutely did have an impact on me not feeling like I sh I should have stuck it out. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I, I'm, I have therapy tomorrow and I know that I'm going to be unpacking a lot of that and I do it on a, a, you know, a weekly basis and with my family and with my friends and, um, it's something I anticipate dealing with for years to come. 
Well, Raquel, and this is a question I'm sure you often hear is, do you, do you see yourself entering politics in the future? Uh, I give the same answer every time I get this because um, I never want to say never just because I, you know, I, I, I know how this, how I, how I ended up in this in the first place. But I, I think that I have, I do have a responsibility to figure out what my impact can be outside of politics um, to encourage other people to run. There's so many women who will be, who are incredibly talented and who um, have skills that I, you know, that I don't, that have a voice that I don't, that have experiences that I haven't had that deserve an opportunity to be elevated and that maybe I'll be able to um, to support in some capacity. Uh, you know, I, I, so I don't know. I might, I might find uh, a point where I think that it's, that my biggest impact could be back in public office of some kind. Um, but it might also not be. And, you know, especially now that we're having more and more conversations about the importance of representation of people of color too, I, women of color are the least represented of any. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about like being a white woman, if there's a woman, a woman of color, that can run, especially in a state like California, that's so diverse. Should, should I, you know, should I even? And, um, and so I, I think that that's a, that's also something that is unique to women that men often don't stop and say, should I be the one? Do I have to be the one? Or is there someone else who could do this better? (laughs) But, um, you know, we'll see, like it's, it's, it's possible, but it's, I don't see it in the, in the immediate future. I don't know why this, you saying that just reminded me of Falwell and the whole thing that's happened with him and how one of his first reactions was to write a letter saying that uh, his wife is really sorry for what she oh, did. Oh God, I know. That one ju- just kills me, that that whole situation. I, I said, you know, I was pretty, um, my Twitter on that was, <laughs> those, yeah. were, those were things that I could say now. Yeah, you I could go check out her Twitter. It's, 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 she's pretty clear how she feels about it. Uh, James on YouTube writes, Katie, thank you for your courage and honesty. I learned about you from Vice HBO documentary. Have you seen it? Did it represent you fairly? Do we need more transparency like this in government? Yeah, I assume that um, you're talking about the the initial one that followed my campaign, the four-part series of called She's Running. Um, and yes, I definitely saw that. They also, Vice uh, did a a follow-up recently with me um, that was, you know, kind of the post-resignation thing. That was a shorter one. But, you know, the reason I decided to do it, I agreed to do it in the first place against all recommendations of consultants and everybody else was because I think people do need to see how campaigns work and and what the political process is like and and what it's like for, um, you know, once people are elected. And I think we're seeing uh, the impact of this generational change in Congress with things like what um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does, you know, just the other day, I think her Instagram, she broke down how she prepares for hearings. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, that's the kind of thing that we need to know for us to be able to figure out how to change the system or for us to even feel like the system is working or is representing us. And, um, and so I'm excited about the fact that there are more and more people, especially young people who are willing to kind of pull back that curtain um, and talk about it openly and honestly. And uh, I don't, some people might've seen on, uh, on HBO, there was a documentary called the swamp. Um, and it followed around two Republicans, Matt Gates being one of them. And, and, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the other one now, but anyway, um, I had a, I had a brief scene in there and it was, you know, despite everything wrong with Matt Gates and his positions, the fact that he was willing to let people see the side that so many politicians hide is to me part of how we do change the system. Um, he actually was unusually, unexpectedly someone who, who came out in support of you um, yep. when you were going through everything you were going through. Lynn has a question actually for both of us. How can the media improve political discourse so that women and minorities feel encouraged to run for office? And, and you were just talking about encouraging women and women of color to run and I mean, I, I'm so glad Lynn asked this question because I really do think that so much encouragement comes from centering and reflecting the experiences of women and women of color, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Uh, their voices just simply haven't been centered in media. Their mm-hmm. stories, their lenses haven't been the center lens. And I think the more that people can see that reflected um, in the stories that are being told and the conversations that we're having on our 
you know, radio and live shows. I guess that would be my answer. I don't know if you have any thoughts for, for Lynn on how the media can improve political discourse so that women. I agree. And I also think that the media calling out um, areas of sexism and, and, um, you know, watching and monitoring themselves for when they engage in sort of uh, gendered kind of commentary or, uh, you know, things that, for example, when Kamala Harris, the stuff uh, leading up to her nomination as VP, where it was talking, people were talking about her being too ambitious. And I think we really did a bad job of that in 2016. You know, the focus on Hillary Clinton's flaws compared to Donald Trump's, the the fact that real or that you know credence was given to any of the nonsense that he said, whereas like she was ripped apart for everything. Those those kinds of things I think need to be really closely followed. And I think we're doing a better job of it this time around. Uh, we've learned a lot probably in the last, you know, four years, but, but there's still a long way to go. Well, Crystal wants to know, young people seemed disillusioned at the idea of having to vote for Biden. How can we validate that while encouraging them to vote? Yeah. Um, so I have, I have, I have two things to say to this. The first one is, uh, very bluntly, dude, come on. Like we got to get rid of Trump. This is, this is the option. Um, so just get over it. But so that's like one side and that's the side that I'll save for like my, my sister, if she were like, she's, she, (laughs) that's what I said to her with Hillary before, but, um, but this time around she's already there. Uh, but the, you know, the more kind of, uh, uh, acknowledging it side is that, you know what, we have, where where we see the most important changes happening are in the representation that reflects us at the, the, the most, um, you know, at the smaller levels. So at the House of Representatives is where you're going to see the change happen first. And we're seeing that, well, even at local municipal offices more so. But um, the House is the place where I think that we, we have to get that diversity happening there. Um, to, before we can even not not that we sh- shouldn't fight for it to happen at higher offices, but before we can reasonably expect for our values to be reflected for the entire country, if it's not even reflected for our own communities, um, you know, including in the most blue progressive regions, if you don't have a, a, a an incredibly progressive representative there, then we're not going to get it for the entire country. So, um, so I think that this is where people, young people, can say, okay. I, I am for all of these super progressive policies. My own elected official is at whatever level you think is you want to be the most passionate about. And if it's federal policies that you care about, then it should be your member of Congress. Congress is every two years. So you're, if you don't like your incumbent, you think that that's not a progressive enough way of approaching things, or you want you know put, to push things further, then that's where you that's where you change things over. In the meantime. We've already with the with the Congress the, with the House of Representatives that we have now because of the changes that happened last time. Even though it may be far more moderate than we want, we still accomplished and passed all of these bills that are that sh- that are historic and that you know equal pay and um, and you know the the uh, the uh, the Equality Act and um, you know HR one like I mentioned earlier those all of these things that were passed that can't even go anywhere. If we don't have, if we don't have Trump out of office, and if we don't have the Senate under Democratic control, then that's why it's so important to elect, to vote in November, and to get him out of the White House. So, if you're not excited about Biden, that's you know what, that's fine. Like it's okay, but do this time. I would rarely say this, but this time vote against Trump and vote to have somebody who we know at least is going to prioritize uh, the Democratic values that we're fighting for and that we're pushing on. Um, and that gives us the opportunity to create the changes at the, at the, you know, the congressional level. And if people are as enthusiastic and as, um, as involved in politics for 2022, as they are in presidential politics, then you can change, you can change things entirely. Well, Kara, audience member Kara writes, I'm wondering how we can change the political arena so that young women who are entering into it are not subject to an interrogation of their sexual lives. How do we disrupt the bizarre fascination with women's past erotic lives? Oh, God. Uh, I wish I had the <laughs> the answer to that. Um, I think it's, you know, I, th- I think it's a, uh, um, a matter of us all calling it out and 
saying that this isn't acceptable and um, that we, you know, we should be uh, embracing or at least not caring about people's past. And, and I think that that's part of where my situation was complicated is because it, it did, it crossed over into a part that we, you know, we, we, that may be considered unethical, not just whatever I did before I was entering public life, right? Like it was just, um, I think it's easier if it's like, yeah, I slept around. I did, you know what I mean? Like I did, I did porn, like whatever, whatever it is that somebody did beforehand, I think should be absolutely, um, unjudged. That should just contribute to the experiences that we, that so many of us have that are not reflected currently, or that have just been hidden. Like, right. You know, our elected officials forever have been, especially men have done all kinds of kinky stuff, but it just hasn't been, um, you know, exposed. And now that we have social media and we have, uh, especially this fascination with women's sexuality, it's, it's being, you know, uh, sensationalized and, and we have to call it out. Um, well, Tara wants to know, you brought your career in social services to Congress. How do you think previous careers impact how Congress members represent their constituents? How do you think your career informed your tenure? That's such a great question. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, when people, when young people now, and, and while I was running, asked me what they should do to, you know, that they think they ultimately want to run for office or they want to be involved in politics, what they should do. I say, work in a nonprofit and, um, you know, go do major in whatever it is that you think you've gotten interest in. It doesn't need to be political science. Don't just go to law school, do something in the community that is addressing the issues that you're passionate about. Um, you will learn the skills that you need to take to any kind of representation if that's what you're still committed to. Um, because the truth is you, you need a broad set of experience. Like my, my roommate when I was there was Lauren Underwood, who was a nurse and who worked, um, but also on the policy side. So she's got this just kind of framework for the, the things that she can work on, um, that I, that I never would have that I, that most, you know, any lawyer who had the kind of typical background that you would expect of a politician or a businessman that they wouldn't have. And um, teachers, like we had, Johanna Hayes was elected in my class and she was, she was a teacher of the year, I think in 20, I don't remember, a couple of years ago, but she brought up, you know, she, was, she sits on the um, education and workforce committee and she just brings up these things that if you haven't been a teacher, if you haven't worked in the classroom like that, that a policymaker would never even think of. And I, I know that I did when it came to housing and to, you know, mental health and to these other areas, um, that would, that were kind of, um, you know, that, that, that there's just a, a blank space in terms of, you know, people that, uh, elected officials might, you know, they might care about it, but they don't know it. They don't know it in the deeply personal way that people do who have, who have worked in that space. But also, I think it, it's, it's a different form of governance too. When you have worked in the nonprofit sector, especially, or in social services, um, you, you know what it takes to collaborate. You know, you, you're kind of, you're looking at human value in a different way. And one of the things I've noticed, I noticed in Congress is that if you take a trajectory, a, a, a career of, you know, and I don't mean to be picking on lawyers. I'm sure there are plenty of lawyers in, 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 that are watching. And I, but it's just such a typical kind of pathway for politics, or it has been. You know, they've never managed people. That that's not normally part of part of becoming a lawyer. You can argue, you can, um, you know, you can come up with laws, or you can read laws. But overseeing people and being a leader is a piece of of it all that I think is um, that is often kind of missed. And so I hope. I hope to see more of um, the diverse backgrounds uh, and experience that we that we saw in this past class. So I'm guessing you've been watching some of the RNC, or yes, I no. Have been, uh, I have been seeing on Twitter <laughs> mainly <laughs> what's been happening and hearing the yeah. recaps. I, I have not tuned in myself. <laughs> I was just talking earlier today with a colleague about how. California feels like like the poster child for Republicans of what you don't they want. They hate them. Yeah, they think that uh, we're awful. I mean, I wanted to get your reaction to that. I mean, you're back in California right now. You live in yep. DC, but you're you're at your mom's house, as you were saying earlier. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, can you put that into some perspective for us? I'm, I'm always just like, okay, one in seven people, one in seven Americans are from California. 
And that, I mean, that's, that's a huge number. That's a, that's a massive number. And to most of us like it here, like there, there, you know, there are people who I think have like, there's a reason so many of us move here and stay here. And, um, it's not just because of the weather, you know, the weather, the weather helps certainly, but, um, but it's, it's like, this is a great place to live. And, and I think the policies, many of us are really proud of the policies that are being enacted by our, um, you know, by these, these Democrats in control. And, uh, and it's not perfect. And we do have unique problems and challenges because of the, you know, the urban settings that we've got and the, you know, the climate change that we're facing and the economic kind of uh, uh, just challenges that are unique to, to communities like ours. But our, um, I'm just like, you must not, you don't, you've never lived here. If you, if you feel like there's this just giant discontent. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, that's my reaction is like, I, I feel like I'm living in DC now for my main, you know, most of the time. And, and I've got a lot of reasons for that. One of which is that it's hard to be back home in terms of my own, you know, everything that's happened in my life, including my brother's yeah, passing, yeah, um, that like, I wanted to have some space, but I, I am and will always be a Californian and I'm proud of that. And, um, most Californians I know are as well. So I don't know, I guess if they, so they just don't us, know they what can. they're missing, they just don't know what, yeah, they just don't get it. <laughs> um, the Commonwealth club has two questions they'd like me to ask you. One is how do you find or navigate inspiration during these uncertain times? That's a good question too. You guys have all kinds of good questions. Um, how do I find inspiration? during these uncertain times. Um, I would say that, you know, you've, you have to be looking for it anywhere you can find it. And I think it's in the, the day-to-day actions of people, um, that were, you know, that we see the, the frontline workers, um, the, the people who are, who are sacrificing their own health and safety to, um, to take care of the rest of us and, and young people who are fighting to make change and, um, you know, even, even the protests, right. The people who are, um, who, who are going out like when I, so I was in DC the night that, um, that, that Trump called in the, uh, he, he, the, 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 the national guard and yeah, and did, to, did the gas to, yeah. and everything mm-hmm. like that. And so that night I was, I decided, I was like, I have to go out. Like I, I need, I felt like that was the, that was the moment that compelled me to, um, to go out and kind of join the protests and, but seeing these young people who are just like willing to risk everything, their personal safety and their, um, and, and just their, you know, their lives is that's inspiring. And the fact that we have, um, you know, these nurses and, um, and healthcare professionals that are, that are doing it every day. My mom is a nurse and, um, she's the, uh, she's in charge of a large hospital here in LA County. She's, um, a, she's called a house supervisor, which means she's the charge nurse of the charge nurses. So the night shift that she works and she's over the whole hospital and they have the, you know, because of COVID patients aren't able to have visitors right now. They're, you know, they're on their own. Many people are dying like alone. And the only ones that they have are the nurses and the only kind of, um, link that families have to their loved ones are through the nurses. And it's just this incredibly hard extra burden to, um, you know, to, to be saddled with, but they're doing it bravely. And, you know, my mom, my mom lost her, her son seven months ago and she's back doing that already. And, and I'm just like, that's, if that's, if that's not inspiring, I don't know what it is. There are other question and it's the last question. And I feel like I need to make sure I get this right. (laughs) So I'm going to make sure that I'm asking it correctly. But the question is, what is your uh, 60 second idea to change the world? Yeah, um, it's the message in my book. And it's the message that I just say over and over and over again. Uh, My 60 second idea to change the world is just watch less than 60 seconds is to elect women, elect women up and down the ballot, um, make it a priority. Don't get into this notion of you know, we shouldn't, that it's identity politics and we shouldn't elect women because they're women. No, we should proudly elect women because they're women, because of the diversity of experience. And because we have, we, we will not get to true equality until we have at least equal representation. Right now, every major legislative body in the United States is pretty much right around 25% held by women. And, you know, that means we've got half representation. So um, that means that we're worse off than Afghanistan and Uganda and uh, you, you, I, 
don't know if I said that right, but, um, but all of these places that, you know, we, we take pride in thinking that we're more democratically, um, you know, advanced or progressive then. And yet we don't even have this basic representation, um, uh, you know, handled. So I'm, I think that that's, that's the thing. We'll change the world if we elect more women. Well, Katie Hill, thank you so much for talking with us. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. And I'm glad to be here. Yes, this is Inform at the Commonwealth Club. Katie's book, She Will Rise, is now available for purchase. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Again, thanks, Katie. I'm Mina Kim. Thank you all for your questions and for participating in this discussion with me. And stay safe.